Everybody all right this morning? Everybody alive this morning? It's good to see you today and welcome to our period of Bible study where we're going to continue our our topical study of uh, Christian evidences, why we believe certain things that we believe. We've looked at the existence of God and the evidence that uh, leads us to that conclusion. And right now we're kind of in the middle of our second major section of this study regarding the inspiration of the Bible and reasons why we have uh, reached that conclusion. And we will uh, pick up there in just a moment. Uh, normally, uh, I've had PowerPoints um, and had planned to have that again today. But I was doing all of that the week before I left for the gospel meeting so that I wouldn't be pressed to do that, and so I'll put the PowerPoint together and then set it aside, and then I'll always just recheck it one last time on Saturday night just to make sure that it's ready to go. I didn't forget anything. All the transitions are, you know, where they need to be and all that. And so I called it up last night and started looking through it, and I thought, well, well, that's, that's not what, that's not right. So I did the PowerPoint for next Sunday's uh, class <laughs> before leaving town, and uh, so I didn't have one for today. But that's all right. Most of the information that uh, that we'll need that that is good to have visually is on the handout, and so I'll be calling your attention to that uh, as we go through the lesson. But I'm a little bit ahead for next week because the PowerPoint's already done, so that's a good thing. Let's pray together, and then we'll continue our study. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity that's ours this morning, that we can study from your divine word, and today as that we will be able to look at reasons why the Bible is from you and not just merely something that human beings devised. We pray, Father, that as we have our faith strengthened by these studies, that that we'll be able to use this information as we interact with folks from time to time and talk about these kinds of things. We pray, Father, that our faith would continue to grow and that we would be molded by your word more and more into the image of your Son. We pray that you would bless those of our number who are ill, those that are recovering from recent surgeries, and we pray that you would bless each of them according to your will. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Looking at reasons why we believe the Bible to be inspired of God. Today we're turning our attention to uh, the concept of fulfilled prophecy. There are a number of things in the Bible that are predictive in nature. And they are of such a nature, given the 
the detail and the timing and things like that, which we'll talk about in a moment. With all of that considered, there is really no other conclusion to be reached than the fact that these must have been statements that were initiated by God. That there's no other way to explain the existence of these prophetic predictive statements except that those statements were being guided by, or the people who made them were being guided by someone, a being that knew the future. And wasn't just, uh, they weren't just lucky guesses. And we'll talk about uh, the importance of detail and things like that. And so that's what we're looking at today, uh, the element of predictive prophecy. Now, when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about something specific, uh, something that has to have certain characteristics, uh, at least three that are involved in uh, a, a real, genuine Prophecy. The first one has to do with timing. Uh, Bible prophecies show a significant length of time between the prophetic statement and its fulfillment. And the timing, the, the, the length of time between prophecy and fulfillment varies, of course. Some have a longer span of time than others. But there has to be a significant amount of time uh, enough amount of time so that it can't be just simply uh, dismissed as a lucky guess or someone who had kind of put two and two together and, and came up with um, you know a, a predictive statement that came true. In other words, <clears throat> there's a difference between predictive prophecy and accurately predicting the weather, just as one example. You know, sometimes the weather people get it right, don't they? Right? Occasionally. I'm not trying to be hard on the uh, on the meteorologists, but if I were to walk outside and and I see you know dark clouds above me and and I hear uh, thunder that's you know that's fairly loud and and all of that, and I look up and I say, "You know what? I'm going to predict that within the next hour it's going to rain." And then lo and behold, within the next hour it rains. Does that make me a prophet? Well, no, it doesn't. It makes me someone who can kind of look at things and make a logical deduction about what I'm seeing. So there's, there's not enough, you know, there's not enough time element involved in that kind of thing. There needs to be a significant amount of time. In the second place, a real prophecy involves specific details. Prophecy is not... Uh, is not vague probabilities. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes you know, if, if I were to if I were to say, for example, using the weather thing, <clears throat> if I were to say, for example, that you know, uh, I'm going to predict that uh, that before this year is out, uh, it's going to rain again in Rosenberg. Well, all right, yeah, probably is. That doesn't make me a prophet, right? Not, not vague generalities. You know, you might go through the, uh, uh, sometimes in the, uh, in the checkout line at the grocery store, you see these, you know, National Enquirer and these other um, magazines that a lot of times near the end of the year, as you're looking forward to the new year, they'll have their uh, predictions made by these astrologers and 
and others. You know, Gene Dixon was famous for that and, and some others. And so you'll see, you know, and you read some of these things and they'll say, well, this psychic says that, you know, that within the next year, you know, a, a major, um, <clears throat> you know, a major political figure in the world uh, is going to die in office. Well, all right. Yeah, probably so. You know, I mean, what's what's the you know, where where's the specificity in that? It's a vague generality. And just because somebody can can look at vague concepts and generalities and say, you know what, I, I'm going to predict that this is going to happen within the next year. And it's just some vague general thing well, that doesn't make an individual a prophet. OK, so there need to be specific details. Biblical prophets dealt with names uh, and specific periods of time, things like that, not just general things. And then the third thing that's necessary for uh, genuine prophecy is exact fulfillment. When, you, when I say exact fulfillment, that's what I mean. 100% of the details, 100% of the time. Which is another reason why these, these so-called prophets of today uh, are nothing of the sort. It's because... They, they, they're not right all the time, and, um, and they admit as much. You know, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, you know what? I mean, they, they tout their, their accuracy, you know. Uh, so-and-so who's making these predictions for this year, last year's predictions, you know, were, you know, were 73% accurate. Well, number one, you're dealing with vague generalities. So 73% is nothing. But by the same token, it's 73% not a hundred. God was clear regarding his prophets. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, God said in the law, if, if a man says that something's going to happen and that thing doesn't happen, then that individual is to be considered a false prophet and dealt with accordingly and, and punished because of it. He said, if a person, essentially, if a person claims to be speaking for me, Speaking my words, God's words, and he says something's going to happen and it doesn't, then you know he wasn't speaking for me. And he was not a genuine prophet. God's prophets were individuals that were required in order to be taken seriously to be right 100% of the time. All right, so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about biblical prophecy, not generalities, not predicting the weather. Um, not 75% accuracy. We're talking about specifics and exact fulfillment. Now, when you put all of those things together and you have a prophecy that, that meets those qualifications, it demands the conclusion that those predictive statements had to have been spoken by one who knows the end from the beginning and can, and can speak of things not yet done. Look at, um, that's wording from Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. That's how God speaks of Himself and His uh, eternality and omniscience, His all-knowingness. Isaiah 46, beginning in 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That's God. And when God spoke through prophets, that's what happened. 
They declared the end from the beginning. They declared from ancient times things not yet done, and they happened just as they were predicted to happen. And so that's what we're talking about. You put all that together, then you have no other conclusion to reach except not that somebody got lucky, and they got lucky 100% of the time with 100% of the details, but that there was a mind, a guiding knowledge behind those predictions that knew what was going to happen. All right? So, that's predictive prophecy. And it's all over the Bible. And it demands the conclusion that God was responsible for uh, their existence. All right, so let's look at some examples. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. Beginning in verse 9. Well, verse 8 begins the sentence. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing. That's a derisive thing. And an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then... After 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I'll bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it and everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. All right. So here were, there were several elements to this particular prophecy, which took place, according to the first verse of Jeremiah 25, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And this was a time, regarding the timing of it, this was a time when, uh, when Judah was not expecting this kind of thing. But God, through the prophet, said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, against this land, the land of Judah. And he's going to come in, and he's going to make a desolation of the place. And and he's going to carry people off into captivity. And that captivity period is going to last for 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, I'm going to punish the Babylonians. And I'm going to and I'm going to overthrow that nation, and they will end up serving others, just like Judah would serve them for that seventy-year period. All right. So he's predicting the overthrow of two nations, the land of Judah, and then seventy years later, he'll punish the Babylonians, and the captivity of Judah will end at that point. All right. So seventy years of captivity. All right, so you've got some timing there, right? You've got the initial attack that's coming 
at some point soon. Then you've got the 70-year period. There's some specific timing. And then the overthrow of the nation. You've got some details. You've got names, right? Nebuchadnezzar is going to do this. The nation of Babylon is going to do this. And they're going to do it to the nation of Judah. Right? So all of that. You've got, spe- you got some real specificity there. Well, did it happen? Yeah. Or the... Details fulfilled? Yep, 100% of the details fulfilled. It happened just as the prophet had predicted. Well, how do you explain that? Lucky guess. You just happened to pick, just out of the blue, the number 70 for the length of the captivity? How about uh, Isaiah chapter 45? Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1 to begin. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before Him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. All right, God, speaking through the prophet, identifies a man named Cyrus that God is going to use, essentially, the terminology is, I'm taking him by the hand, and I'm going to use him to subdue nations. And look at verse 13 of the same chapter. He's still in the the context, he's still talking about Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. All right, so at some point in the future, God says a king, an anointed one, by the name of Cyrus, is going to come along, subdue nations, and is going to set my exiles free. All right, that prophecy was given 150 years before it was fulfilled. 150 years before, number one, Cyrus ever became king of anything. He would be the first king of the Persians. And at a time when the Persians weren't even in a position to let anybody go, they weren't even the world dominant power at the time. The prophet identified that a man named Cyrus is going to come along. He's going to subdue nations, be in a position to let exiles go free, and is going to set my people free. 150 years before anybody had ever heard of this guy. Well, lo and behold, what happens 150 years later, when the 70-year Babylonian captivity period was, was time for that to be over, according to prophecy... And it was time for God to judge the Babylonians and subdue them, just like the Babylonians subdued Judah. Who comes along? The Persians. Under whose leadership? A fellow named Cyrus. And what did Cyrus do whenever he conquered the Babylonians and, and the Persians came to the dominant stage in world politics? What did he do? He let the people go. By specific decree, you can read it in Ezra chapters one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, Cyrus decrees that God's people could return to their homeland. 
Ezra chapter 1. We don't have time to delve into it in great depth, but look, Ezra 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And then you got the de- Cyrus's decree that allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland. Well, was Isaiah just lucky? Just pull the name out of the air. Let me send this. How about Cyrus? And lo and behold, 150 years later, who becomes king over the Persians to let God's people go but Cyrus? How about uh, look at 1 Kings chapter 13. First Kings chapter 13. <clears throat> Beginning verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Now this is... Uh, right after the division of the kingdom. Prior to the coming of, uh, of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the, the nation of Israel was, was united together. There was no political division within the kingdom. Saul was the first king, and then David, and then Solomon after him. And at Solomon's death, Rehoboam, Solomon's son... Uh, became king over the united nation, the united kingdom. But uh, due to a variety of circumstances, um, you know, bad counsel that he took and all that, the, the nation split. Ten of the tribes formed their own nation in the northern part, and then Judah and Benjamin were in the southern part, and they were their own nation. So you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Well, the first king over that newly split northern kingdom was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam didn't want the people to go down to Jerusalem for worship anymore because Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. He didn't want them going down there. He wanted them to stay in Israel. And so he set up temples and altars in the southern part of the northern kingdom, Bethel, and in the northern part of the northern kingdom, in the city of Dan. And he put idols in both of those places and basically told the people, these are your gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. You worship there. Don't go down to Jerusalem anymore because it's in the other nations in the southern kingdom. So here's Jeroboam in Bethel at this place where these uh, sacrifices are being made to false gods, to idols. And so this man of God, a prophet, unnamed, comes to Jeroboam. Now look at verse 2, 1 Kings 13. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said. that The prophet speaks to the altar. But he's making a point to Jeroboam. O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. There's the prediction. Again, did this fellow, this this prophet, this man of God, did he just pull a name out of the air? 
say, I, I, I don't know, well, Josiah. And then lo and behold, incidentally, this prophecy was made about 300 years before it was actually fulfilled. 300 years. How long has America been a nation? Less than that. Can you imagine somebody long before we became a country? Back in the old colonial days, somebody said, one of these days, a man's going to come along to rule this nation. And his name will be Barak. And then, lo and behold, what might you what might you conclude about that person who spoke it 300 years prior? Let's pull the name out of the hat, and we got lucky. Well, here was a man 300 years before it happened. He said, "God's going to raise up a king of the household of David." So he even gave his family name, and his name the man's name will be Josiah. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to sacrifice on you the priests who are defiling the name of God by offering sacrifices to false gods. Right on this altar, in this location, in this place. All right, so you got specificity, you got details, you got names, you got all that. Well, what happens in 2 Kings 23? Second Kings 23, verses 15 and 16. Some 300 years after that statement was made. Second Kings 23, 15. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin... That altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. Those were uh, kind of wooden poles, totem pole kind of things that they would worship at. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. So who did that? Josiah. All right, so, so you got, again, details, timing, exact fulfillment. Now, those, those are just three prophecies scattered around the Old Testament that are examples of what you find in all of the predictive prophecies. We didn't even touch any of the prophecies concerning Jesus. Think about those. Yeah, Alan. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point. Alan, if you didn't catch that, Alan was making the point that while there is definite specificity in the prophecies, there is also uh, enough left out that isn't stated um, that would... Uh, you didn't use these words, but I, th but I think the point is um, that had God given maybe too much detail in certain things, like with the, with the second coming of Christ, then people would not necessarily put their faith and their confidence and their trust in God when they should. Use the example of if, if the Lord had said, I'm going to return uh, on you know, April the 25th at 8 a.m., so be ready for that. Then you know, everybody would probably live however they wanted to, and then today our building would be full with people saying, all right, it's time to get things right. Uh, but he left out that particular detail to enable us to put our faith and our confidence in him based upon what we already know about him and what he's done in the past through fulfillment of prophecy and other things. And so, yes, there's specificity, but he didn't always give every detail of every prophecy, and that's true. All right, you think about some of the things that were stated about Jesus, that were predicted. That he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, fulfilled, Matthew 1. And that prophecy was 700 years before Jesus came. That he would be from the nation of Israel. He would be of uh, the Abrahamic lineage, Genesis 22:18. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. The words to Abraham by God, Genesis 22:18. Jesus was the fulfillment of that according to Paul in Galatians 3, verse 16. So he's from the, the, the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10, it was predicted that this, this coming one would be of the tribe of Judah. And it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, Hebrews 7, verse 14. So there's another prophecy and fulfillment. From the family of David, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. Jesus was that, Luke 1, verse 32. There are, you know, different people count them different ways. But uh, <clears throat> conservative count, a couple of hundred references in the Old Testament to the coming of Christ and His kingdom. And with, with the detail, the timing and all of that, what are the odds that even one of those would come true? Much less every one of them. There's only one conclusion to reach in that, in that respect. They had to have been prophecies guided by a mind that could tell the end from the beginning. All right, Daniel chapter 9. We don't have time to... Uh, to cover this in a lot of depth. Alan was uh, chiding me before class 
that he's covering that in his Daniel class in about two weeks, uh, <clears throat> the Daniel 9, uh, 70 weeks prophecy. And uh, he suggested that he, you know, that he didn't really want me to tell people not to come to his class since we're covering it today. My response was, no, they need to come to your class because he can clean up the mess that I'm going to make of the prophecy this morning. All right, Daniel 9, and I, I use Daniel 9 a lot when I talk about predictive prophecy because uh, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's got some difficulties in it, no question about that. Uh, but I believe there's, there's some specificity in it that, uh, that really amazes me. And uh, we'll look at it and, uh, uh, and see what you think. First of all, there's a contextual thing to consider. We talked earlier about how because of Israel's sinfulness, God decreed that they would spend 70 years as captives in a heathen land. Jeremiah predicted that. The Babylonians would, would take them. But have you ever wondered why 70? Why not 60? Why not 80? Why not some other number? Was the 70-year period arbitrary? Or was there some specific reason for it? I suggest that there was probably uh, a reason why it was 70 and not some other length of time. And it's for this reason. The Law of Moses stated that Israel should observe every seventh year as a sabbatical year. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. Basically, God said, in the sabbatical year, don't plant anything, right? Let, let the land, um, uh, you know, recover and all of that. Don't plant anything. Don't reap. Don't harvest. God's going to, I'll take care of you and all of that. Uh, so every seventh year was a sabbatical year for the land. You read through the rest of the Old Testament and um, there's no specific statement anywhere in the rest of the Old Testament that the people ever did that. That doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't, but there is, there's nothing stated that indicates that they uh, had done that. But what there is, is a statement in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21, that seems to indicate that there was a long period of time in which they didn't. Second Chronicles chapter 36, last chapter of the book, Verses 20 and 21. Here the chronicler is describing the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. Notice that. The Babylonians came in took the people captive and kept them there until until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. What does that tell you? Well, evidently, the land had not been enjoying its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years, the end of that verse says. So that passage seems to indicate that the 70-year period was decreed so that the land during that time could fulfill its Sabbaths. And if the Sabbath year came every seven years, and there were going to need to be 70 years to fulfill the Sabbaths that the land did not enjoy, then wouldn't that tell us that for approximately 490 years, 
they had ignored that law? Right? You got the 70 years was because 70 Sabbaths needed to be enjoyed by the land and fulfilled. And if the 70 Sabbaths came every seven years, that's 490 years, right? Am I right? Is that math? Okay. So that suggests that Israel had ignored that commandment for that long. Now, the Babylonian captivity period seems to have been, perhaps, some kind of midway historical point. Looking back some 490 years of disobedience to the sabbatical law, and looking ahead approximately that amount of time to what Daniel refers to as the end of transgression. The righteousness of God coming. Atonement coming. And so, prophecy covers a period of 70 periods of seven. Back, we're back in Daniel 9, verses 24 and following. Seventy weeks are declared. Weeks is, is a word, literally, again, it's seventy periods of seven. Seven, of course, a complete number uh, when it's used figuratively. I think there's some figurative usage going on here. Because what's going to happen in this seventy periods of seven are going to be some things that are coming to completion. To finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, sealing up vision and prophecy. All of that in verse 24. Alright, so I think there's some symbolism. And the way I see this prophecy, I, I grant, and I want to put that out here at the outset, is that I'm suggesting a possibility here on the fulfillment of, of, of this prophecy, or at least the timing of it as it's, as it's laid out. Right? I believe the 70 periods of seven are references to um, years. 70 uh, periods of seven years. That's, that's what I think is happening there. And in that time period, wish we had more time to do this. Alan will fix it in a couple of weeks. All right, so you'll, you'll have in verse 24, here's what's going to happen. The Messiah's advent is his coming into the world and its purpose. The beginning point of, of when to start that prophecy uh, and the timing of it. The initial phase, uh, the Messiah's death will happen, verse 26. The declaration of coming destruction on the temple, also verse 26. All right, so you've got things that are being predicted that are going to happen when Jesus comes. The coming of the Messiah, all of that to, to, to deal with the problem of sin. And that's the primary goal that verse 24 sets out of the Messiah coming to earth, to, to deal with the sin problem. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? Now, the time element is given in the prophecy. And it's look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right? Seven periods and 62 periods. And then after this time, verse 26, in the middle of the 70th week, 
the anointed one would be cut off. So, from the starting point of the command to restore and, be, and to rebuild Jerusalem to the termination point, the death of the Messiah, if these are, suppo- are considered to be a 490-year period for the 70 weeks, you've got 486 and a half years roughly that would pass from the going forth of the commandment to the death of the Messiah. All right? So, all, that le- all that's left is to determine, well, when did the command go forth? What commands he talking about? If you can get the starting point, you can get the ending point. Well, there were only three instances of return from exile. The one in 536 under Zerubbabel, the one in 457 under Ezra, and the one in 444 under Nehemiah. Now, Zerubbabel's commission, the first one in 536, to rebuild the temple. That was what he was uh, sent to do. All right, so his, his mission was not, Zerubbabel's, was not to restore and rebuild the city. It was to get the temple in place. Plus, if you start at 536 and you do the timing, you come out with a date for the death of Christ at about 50 B.C. Well, that's too soon. If you look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah certainly was commissioned to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. But if you do the timing from 444, then you end up with the terminal point in the prophecy being about 13 years after Jesus died. So that doesn't seem to fit either. But if you calculate calculate the prophecy from Ezra's commission in 457, then the terminal point in the prophecy, the time of the Messiah's death, comes out to 30 A.D. When did Jesus die? What year? 30 A.D. Now, that then leaves the question that people often ask, well, did Ezra's commission involve the rebuilding of the city? Wasn't Ezra sent to reestablish the law? Well, yes, that was his primary purpose. But if you'll look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 9, you'll see that uh, there was more involved in the commission for Ezra than just that, though it wasn't until Nehemiah came that the, the rebuilding of the city walls and all of that was accomplished. But Ezra 9, verse 9. For we are slaves, he says, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us revival, to set up the house of our God, to repair the ruins, and to give us protection, to give us a wall in Judea and Jerusalem. Now this is Ezra speaking. And Ezra says, look, we've been granted grace in the eyes of the Persians to be allowed to come back. And what, are we, what have we been commissioned to do when we have come back? Well, he included in that also to, to, to erect a wall and reestablish the city. So Ezra's commission, though his main focus was on the law, his commission seemed to involve more than that and wasn't accomplished until Nehemiah came and all of that. So I don't think it's out of the question to say that starting at Ezra, you know, it it does fit the details of the prophetic statement. From the command to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem until the death of the Messiah. Would be 486 plus years. And if you date it from 457, which is when Ezra returned, and you do the math, it comes out to 30 A.D., which was exactly the year that Jesus was 
All right? I, I think it's pretty amazing. Now, again, one, there, there are some difficulties, I grant, especially with some of the ending part of that prophecy with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem, which didn't happen at the time Jesus died, but didn't happen until some 40 years after that. So how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think there may be some significance at the end of verse 26 after he talks about you know, the, the, the destruction, the sanctuary is going to come to an end. Look at the last phrase of verse 26. Desolations are decreed. Looks as though perhaps the prophecy is that the desolation on the temple is going to be decreed within this time period. Not necessarily carried out. But decreed. Did Jesus decree the coming destruction of the temple in his lifetime? He did, right before he died, Matthew 24. So, yes, there are certain aspects of the prophecy that offer some difficulties. And I get that. I, I understand that. There, there are parts of it that I uh, have, you know, that, that are hard. That I may not even be able to answer to my own satisfaction. But I do think there's enough there that... that gives us what I believe is an amazing, descriptive, detailed prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and the timing of it. And then, again, you got prophecies about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all of that. You put all of that together. Detail, fulfilled. Um, uh, in those details, there is no way to account for all of this without including in the process of explanation an all-powerful and all-knowing God who directed these individuals to predict these things and then saw to it that they were fulfilled. All right? You know, we could spend a whole quarter on fulfilled prophecy. So we just kind of covered some of the basics today, and hopefully uh, it was helpful to you. Thank you much.